HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This piece was brought to you by Paradise Locker Meats, paradiselockermeats.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. All right. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. We are coming to you, as always, from the back of Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn. You're listening to The Farm Report, and I'm your host, Aaron Fairbanks. And today, we are on the line with Richard Oswald. Richard is a fifth-generation farmer. He lives out in Langdon, Missouri, and he is currently the president of the Missouri Farmers Union. Richard, welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm glad to be with you. Well, I'm glad, too. I'm really excited to kind of delve into this conversation um you identified yourself um in in a recent daily yonder article as a farmer in the middle kind of caught between these two forces that that weren't kind of bringing you to the table in the way that that you'd like to or or maybe you don't want to be at the table i'm not really sure but i want to kind of get a sense (laughs) from you um what you meant by that farmers in the middle well in america we have a really two really visible types of agriculture, and the most visible types of agriculture we have are the large, large corporate agriculture that produces a lot of the meat that we consume, the pork and the chicken and the beef, and and then we have the local food movement, which I support 100%, and organic growers, and they're very visible right now because there's a lot of discussion about where we ought to get our food and how that food ought to come to the table. But right in the middle are all the people like me, who are the multi-generational family farmers who were born and raised on the farm, just as I was. I'm a fifth-generation farmer in Missouri. I can go back many, many more generations if I want to go back to the East Coast, where some of my family originated in Maine, where they were farmers and fishermen. But, But we are the people who really have the accumulated knowledge that's passed down from one generation to the next about how to grow food. And we've done what any business in America has done, typically, and that is we've modernized. We've learned what we think are better ways to do the jobs we have to do. And so we don't look the same as as our grandfathers or our great-grandfathers because we've found 
better ways to do things, things that don't require such intensive physical labor uh, as my dad even had to go through. But we've also seen market consolidation so that we really have a hard time growing livestock like we used to and, and producing meat for food because of those, those large corporations have taken it over. And yet, when local food movements take over and when we have discussions or when you have discussions like you've had in, in New York City with, with, with folks like Mark Bittman, who writes in the New York Times, and Michael Pollan, um, they tend to lump us all in with the industrial food folks. And it makes it really difficult for people like me who, who had to struggle and fight just to stay on the farm at all. It makes it really frustrating to be lumped in with what's considered to be an undesirable lot. And I just think the America needs to know that, that, that we're not industrial food producers. We're family farmers. Yeah, and I think that you're, you're, you're touching on an interesting point. I mean, I remember I spent... I spent just a year working on, you know, one of those niche uh, niche market farms. We raised rare, rare bred hogs in upstate New York. But just up the road, there was a, you know, a dairy farm that milked 300 head of cattle. So they, they were a CAFO. And I remember walking, you know, I hung out there quite a bit, you know, and I remember talking to the gentleman who ran the farm and I was like, you know, fresh off the boat from New York City. And I'm like, well, I read in this book by Michael Pollan that, you know, cows aren't supposed to eat corn or grains because they're ruminants and they're meant to only eat grass. And then here I am standing in the middle of this farm, which seems pretty nice, and and the cows seem pretty happy. And they're definitely eating a grain. um, And and I don't really get that. And, And he said to me, you know, what are you talking about? I've never heard that in my life. And, you know, this is a fifth generation farmer. You know, I'm trying to imagine myself in his shoes where, you know, his family's been farming for generations. He grew up on a farm. He's worked professionally as a farm. He went to a land grant institution. You know, it has been kind of academically trained as a farmer. And here I am, some kid from Brooklyn who's telling him that, you know, something is wrong here because I read a book. Um, and it was yeah. just a weird moment for me. And I, you know, he handled it really well and I shut up pretty quickly, but I walked away from that. And I, and I, I keep coming back to it. I, cause I don't, I think I'm with you. And I don't really know where to put that for myself. You know, this kind of gap between, you know, what you're, what you're reading that makes sense. And then standing in the midst of that farm and what makes sense. And then going to the grocery store to buy food. Um, it's it's a confusing landscape, and that's what I kind of want us to to chat a little bit about today because the that situation you know brought up more questions than it answered, and and I didn't really know what to do or kind of how to share that story. And I'm wondering if you know I'm guessing that maybe has you've had a similar experience to that, but maybe from the other side. Well, yeah, I think that's it's what we listen to. Out here where I live in northwestern Missouri, this is a pretty rural area, but I'm sandwiched in between uh, cities like Omaha, Nebraska, and Kansas City, Missouri. And and we have a little different outlook probably on food in general in most of those communities. Uh, there are local food movements in both, and, and there are certainly people there who think the same way as what you just said. But we have decidedly a more Midwestern taste of things, but one of the problems, as you just pointed out, with dairy farmers is, you know, 
dairy farms, particularly small and medium-sized dairy farms, the family farms, really honestly, family farms, have had an awful time the last few years because they've had to compete with large cluster dairies and with uh, a, a national dairy policy that was really unfavorable to them, really that favored a, a lot of imports into this country and, 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 and trying to promote exports of, of our own dairy products and, and making a lot of, you know, a lot of stuff out of milk instead of just selling milk and, and butter and cream. And so they've had to work and really struggle to survive with the type of markets that that's created for them. And then there's a dairy policy that the federal government has supported that has really not done anything for them to help them with their struggle. And it's a really good example of what you just said, of where you're told, well, cattle aren't supposed to eat this or that. They're supposed to just eat grass and cellulose. And that's true. Cattle are designed by nature to be able to create what their body needs, mostly from just eating grass. But any good animal husbandryman will feed his cattle some supplements, some grains and some protein supplements, when their normal diet needs to be supplemented. And that's sort of what happens. You know, most cows in the the spring and the summer, when the grass is good, that's about all they need. But there's more than just the spring and the summer to get through. You've got you've got the end of summer and the fall and the winter where those cows have to be nourished so that you know they can take care of their bodies and do their job. And and I think that a lot of that has sort of been demonized by people who who just really don't give us credit for the job that we have to accomplish because there's a lot of people in the world to feed, and there's going to be a lot more. We've got over 400 million mouths to feed in the United States. And uh, American farmers like to say, well, American farmers feed the world. But these days, American farmers don't even feed America because we rely on a lot of imported things for our people to eat. And I don't think that American farmers should be held accountable to a different standard than than other farmers around the world. I think that America should give farmers credit for trying to do their job and trying to feed everybody, because that's what we really try to do. I I hear what you're saying, and I'm also wondering, though, there is a, um, you know, farmers, in my experience, you know, they're not Luddites, they're not anti-technology, they're not anti, I don't know, I don't want to say that anti-change, but I think there's something about this system that's not working. It's not working for consumers and it's not working for farmers. And what I want to try and tease out in this conversation is, is what is that? Cause the other things that I kind of hear you talking about seem to me like policy issues in the way that we have incentivized or disincentivized or regulated or not regulated different types of production. Um, and, to me, that it it seems like maybe that is a place to find some common ground, but but maybe not. Maybe you think differently. I'm curious. No, that's it's really what needs to happen because, um, you know, the packing business. To talk about meat packers for a moment, what it used to be that meat packers had to follow certain rules. There were laws, and they had to follow those laws and, and obey those rules, or, or they faced action by the Justice Department. You know, it's not fair for three or four big packers to talk to each other uh, 
back and forth and decide what kind of price they're going to pay for a farmer's cattle or his hogs or his chickens. But we've got a government today who really doesn't believe in forcing those laws anymore. And so we've seen continued consolidation in our meat, in our meat markets, uh, markets where we sell our cattle and used to sell our hogs and our, and our chickens. And now those markets are pretty much controlled by about four or five big packers. And they sort of decide what things are worth. And they control uh, a lot of that, a lot of those livestock really from birth to slaughter to where they're marketed because they, they've taken over because they've owned the markets and farmers couldn't sell profitably. The packers started producing their own hogs and their own cattle and their own chickens. And they've taken that job away from farmers. You know, for a farmer to be able to be successful, he has to be able to compete. And if someone who's bigger and more powerful can just put his foot on you and hold you down, then it's it's impossible to compete. And that's one thing that would really help America. If you want to see food diversity in America, then make those markets competitive again. Make those packers play by the law. Make them obey that law and and open up more diverse and better markets, and then you'll have farmers who want to produce that livestock or, or poultry for those markets. So your sense right now is that it's that you're kind of that, that many producers are stuck between a little bit of rock and a hard place. I, I mean, to me, it sounds a, a lot of ways, too, like there's, you know, with the increased consolidation and the vertical integration that there is in some ways this race to the bottom where on some level it seems like price and efficiency have become the only criteria by which we're stewarding um, or I guess not stewarding really, the only criteria by which we're measuring kind of success in food production. Right. Well, you know, you see all kinds of antitrust enforcement and and, and things, give and take, between large corporations. Um, there, you know, if someone steals someone else's cell phone technology, they sue them and the government says that's not right. Or when Google wants to, wants to own all the Internet access in the world, well, the government says, no, you can't do that. That's happened over in Europe. And, but when it comes to food, it doesn't seem that it really matters to the government how big the food industry is allowed to grow and, and how concentrated it's allowed to become in how few hands. And if you gave me control, if you gave me control of one segment of the food industry, then the government could hail me as being terribly efficient because look at all I control. But that's not the true measure of efficiency. The true measure of efficiency is when you have functioning markets where people actually pay fair prices for everything they buy, and sell everything they have to sell at fair prices. And you can only achieve that if you have a fair and open marketplace. And we just don't have that, particularly for um, for livestock and poultry. But it's that way somewhat in the vegetable industry, too, these days. You know, there's there's a few big names in that industry as well. And, and that makes it difficult for family farmers like me to compete. That's the, that's the reason why. When I first began working on the farm, my mother, my mother and dad's farm, probably I started farming when I was about 14 years old, literally doing the work. And we had hogs, and we had some chickens, and we had cattle, and we raised corn, and we raised hay, and we raised wheat. But over the years, all that's changed now to where I pretty much uh, grow just two crops. 
and that's corn and soybeans. And the reason for that is because that's the place I've been able to go. That's the direction I've been able to take my farm where I could make a living and survive to do it another year. And I think, I mean, that, so you're, you're one of those, those corn and soybean farmers that we hear about here in Brooklyn operating out in the Midwest, and yet here you are, a real person, not an alien, who seems, <laughs> um, I, th- I think, like, that's, I think, the other kind of part of this conversation that I think we're often missing is, um, and I think it's really a marketing ploy uh, to, there's something standing in the way of, of that communication, you know, um, that it's, it's real people, you know, motivated by the same things that I'm motivated by, you know, p- providing for your family, having a nice life, having enough to eat, but also, you know, giving back in some way to your community. And I'm, I'm wondering, you know, you're, you're asking for the marketplace to become more fair and more open, but do you think that there's been a lack of, it, is it been a lack of enforcement? Is there a lack of rules? Is it import-export policy? Is it more government? Is it less government? Well, we have we have different government in some ways. In some ways, we have more government. We have free trade agreements, and that's something that's been touted as, as the be-all and end-all of these free trade agreements. But a, a lot of times, free trade agreements haven't really worked in the favor of U.S. agriculture, and, and particularly family farmers. Um, that's too much government. That's too much agreement. But, but when we have to open our, our borders to another country's product, regardless, no matter what, that's not right. That's still not a fair free market. And that's one of the reasons why dairy farmers have had such a struggle is because they've had to compete with a lot of foreign supplies uh, of milk products that they wouldn't ordinarily have had to compete with. And it's really, we have a word for that, and it's called dumping. Thanks to those trade agreements why those other countries in the world can dump into our markets, and that makes it really hard for our farmers to survive. That's one reason why dairies are getting bigger and more industrial in nature and controlled by even ever bigger companies is simply because those are the only people who can compete with that sort of cutthroat competition that's mandated by government regulation, and that's all, that's all it is, is it's mandated. By some by government agreements and government regulations. On the other hand, we've had Packers and Stockyards Act here in the United States for almost a hundred years, and it's something that used to be enforced when markets became uh, when 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 buyers colluded too much, and it short circuited that fair market that that bidding process that has to take place to find a fair price. Then the federal government used to step in and say, "No, you can't do that." You've got to step apart. You can't work together, you big companies, you big packers. You've got to stand apart and stand on your own. And our government doesn't do that anymore. It's had the opportunity. And people like me have been urging the Obama administration, particularly in the Bush administration before that, to take some action because we've shown them how obvious it is that laws have been broken. But they prefer not to do that because there is a psychology of big food in this country. Richard, we're going to take just a, a, a short break, and when we come back, um, I want to talk a little bit more about uh, your farm and, and your kind of work with the uh, Missouri um, Farm Bureau. So hang tight. We'll be right back. Okay.
we'd like to send a special thank you to our newest business member, Paradise Locker Meats, a family-run supplier of beef, pork, lamb, smoked sausages, and game meat in Tremble, Missouri. All meat cutting and processing is done on-site in their USDA-inspected plant. The Phantasma family have gained a notable reputation for providing quality meat products. They have a wide range of dedicated customers, in addition to celebrity and notable chefs throughout the U.S., receiving their product each week through Heritage Foods USA. Paradise Locker Meats and the Phantasma family look forward to serving you. For more information, visit www.paradiselockermeats.com. This is Mario. And this is Teresa Phantasma with With Paradise Paradise Locker Locker Meats. Meats. And you're listening listening to to Heritage Heritage Radio Radio Network. Network. All right, we are back. You're listening to the Farm Report, and we are on the line with Richard Oswell. Before the break, I said the the Missouri Farm Bureau, but I was incorrect. It's the Missouri Farmers Union. So before, yes, thank you for correcting that. (laughs) I was like, that was a big, that was a big boo boo. (laughs) Well, well, let's use that opportunity. Let's use my boo boo to have a teaching moment here. What's the difference? Well, the difference between Missouri Farm Bureau or Farm Bureau and Missouri Farmers Union or just plain old Farmers Union is. Farm Bureau is a very conservative, typically a very Republican organization, and Farmers Union tends to be uh, more liberal, more left-leaning. We we tend to defend the individual farmers and the small farmers and family farmers and talk about that stuff a lot more, whereas Farm Bureau is more like typical conservatives who really don't want to hold up for individuals. They tend to more balance with the status quo, or at least that's my interpretation of it. So how how long have you been serving as the president of the Farmers Union? Well, I think I've actually been president for about four years. Uh, Missouri uh, had a farmers union, a state farmers union, uh, that was established back in the 1900s, uh, and then it sort of well, fell out of existence for a while. And in 1999, when a group of Missourians reestablished Missouri Farmers Union, and we're an accredited chapter of National Farmers Union with their headquarters in Washington, D.C. So can you tell us, um, you know, because you have this unique position uh, to kind of look at, you know, a group of Missouri farmers in the aggregate, what are, you know, what are some of the concerns you're hearing? What are the issues that you guys are working on? What's kind of percolating to the, to the top of the pile for, your, for you and your team? Well, one of the things that we haven't talked about that we should talk a little bit about is is uh, genetics in farming these days and seed patents. You know, when my dad farmed and raised corn, uh, he didn't buy seed in the 30s. He just saved seed back from the previous year's crop. And he never raised soybeans. So I was the first one to raise soybeans on our farm. And when I raised soybeans, for a while, I didn't buy seed. I just saved seed back from the previous crop. But now seeds are patented, and it's illegal to save seeds back from the previous crop. I'm a seed grower, but I, I grow seed under contract with a large multinational corporation, and I'm not allowed to save any of that seed back for my own use. I have to source that seed from that company, and then they come and get all the production of my farm, and which they resell to other farmers as seed. And it's very difficult these days to be a farmer and grow those conventional soybean and corn crops because 
virtually all of those are grown from patented seed. So large corporations have taken control of most of our seed supply, too. And, and that removes more diversity. That, and that's a result of using genetic modification. Uh, when Monsanto was able to prove that they had built a unique gene and inserted it into a, a soybean plant, then they were allowed to patent that creation. And that's been, oh, that's been close to 20 years ago. And that situation remains today. So you're, so you're a seed farmer. So that means the, 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 the soy and the corn that you, you plant, it's not being harvested for animal consumption or human consumption. It's being bagged and resold to other farmers to plant crops for consumption. Is that right? That's true. That's the soybeans. Now, the corn I grow, and, and I've always been the type of farmer who I really want to grow food for people. It's really what I want to do. But as I said earlier, my, my farm has, has evolved so that I do what I have to do to maintain the farm and make a living for myself and provide for my family. But the corn I grow is still food corn. I grow white corn, which is literally white-colored corn. It's not yellow. It's white. And, and it's used in food products like corn chips and taco shells and things like that. And I also grow something called waxy corn, which is a high-starch corn, and that corn is actually refined and the, and the starch removed from it, and that starch is used in all kinds of food products as well as some industrial products. So I'm still a food farmer. I have to work at it a little bit, but it's important for me to be able to say that at least something I grow is fed to people. And can you talk about, you know, how that transition... So I think one of the things that, that's always been challenging for me to kind of get is is... How, how that happens, you know, you, you say that you're doing what you needed to do to keep your, your farm and business, to keep your land in, in agriculture, to like support your family. So what, where does that conversation start as far as the contract growing? I mean, is that a guy or a woman who shows up at your house and they're like, Hey Richard, I got a deal for you. And like, what does that look? Is it you know in the is it percolating in the region? Like, where does that shift? Like, can you kind of operationalize how that shift happens for us? Well, farmers. I was asked yesterday by a person. I said, "Are are farmers heroes? Do you think that farmers are heroes?" And I told him, "No, I, I don't think farmers are heroes. People who serve in the armed forces, you know, the, the folks who have." carry weapons and, and defend our country, uh, policemen in the big cities, firemen, those folks are all heroes. Those men and women do put themselves in the line of fire and, and do risk their lives sometime during the course of doing their job. But a farmer is just like everybody else. We just want to work and make a living, but we also want to take pride in what we do. We want to be proud and feel that what we're doing has value to it that we're contributing something, not just to our bank accounts, but contributing something to mankind. And I think that's what makes a farmer a farmer, because he's got that desire to to serve mankind and, and to provide food and things that people need. So when you're, when you're a farmer like that, then you look for places that are not only financially rewarding, you look for ways to go that are not only financially rewarding, but things that make you feel 
good about yourself and your farming operation. So I grow seed because you're rewarded. By growing seed, you're rewarded for doing a good job because quality is very, very important with seed. It, it, it's important that you do a good job because if you don't do a good job, you won't have good seed that produces a good crop the following year. And, and so that makes me feel good. And I grow the kind of corn I do because that makes me feel good. But I had to leave those other things that I really enjoyed. I really enjoyed raising cattle, uh, not hogs so much because hogs will will test your metal. Hogs are hogs can be challenging. You know, the hogs are the kind of animal that if they can break break free and run out into the farmyard and and tear it all up, root it up with their nose. You know, hogs dig in the ground with their noses. They do that, and that makes it. They're very, they're very exasperating sometimes. So I don't miss raising hogs so much, but, but the reason I don't do those things anymore is because, in those cases where I had them and market prices crashed, and I mean literally fell down to nothing, you have to consider the fact that you've grown the grain on the farm, you've done all this work, you grow the grain, and then you put the grain into the livestock, and then you market the livestock. Well, if you grow the grain and you put it in the livestock and then the big corporations steal your livestock, what have you got left? You don't have anything. You can't make a living. And not only that, you feel bad about yourself. You feel that you've made a horrible mistake. You've done this awful decision by choosing to make your living this way. You've let your family down. You've let yourself down. You've let your banker down. And that's why we've evolved the way we have is because... We want to feel good about ourselves, but we've had, got to pay those bills. We've got to look our family in the eye every day and know that we're providing for them, in addition to doing things for the rest of the people of the world that they value and need, too. Um, I'm, I'm in your, I'm looking at one, there was one, one of your writings I was looking at where you're talking about kind of the environmental responsibilities uh, of a farmer and being able to, stand, you know, with your family and, and feel like you were doing right by by the land. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about um, that. Well, you know, the land is the most important thing there is. There's, there's not much that you can pass on to your family if you're a farmer unless it's the land. Buildings don't stand forever. Livestock herds don't last forever. Plants don't last forever. But the land is forever. And for all those other things to exist, we've got to take care of the land. And that's why I'm a no-till farmer, and I've been no-tilling well, for close to 30 years now. I gave up tillage slowly because I grew up in a culture where you had to no-till. That was the culture. That was what everyone believed. You have to till the soil. You have to plow. You have to stir. You have to leave the, the bare soil exposed in order to have a good seed bed and, and that's another place where technology comes in because as machinery that we use to plant our crops and tend them has improved, then we've gained the ability to become better no-tillers and to be able to seed a crop into the previous year's crop residue without ever having to disturb that soil. And that protects the soil. It protects it from wind and water erosion. It keeps nutrients in place. It makes the soil um, healthier because... Uh, Earthworms and all the other creatures that live in the soil can survive better there. And uh, while I'm not the only no-till farmer in my area here, 
I'm not exactly part of the majority because there's still a lot of farmers who believe in that pillage process. But slowly and surely, they're looking and they're seeing what some of the others of us are doing, and they're beginning to adopt more and more of that technology. And I think that's what you get. You get that with a family farmer. You get a conscience because, you know, we aren't the biggest, most powerful group of folks in the world. We're struggling to to make ends meet. And, and we're also struggling to find a better way to do things. And there's a lot of angst involved in that sometimes. But it's very important to preserve the soil and to and to know that we've done the very best we can do for it because it takes thousands and thousands of years to build the kind of rich topsoil like I have right here on my farm today. I sure don't want to get be the one to get the credit for destroying any of that. Well, so you you came across my um, radar. I got forwarded a this article I talked about a little bit at the top of the show. Letter from Langdon, tastes like chicken, that was published in the in the Daily Yonder, I, I believe, last week. So, um, you know, you make a, a number of comparisons in this article to uh, you know family farmers and aliens, and kind of talk a little bit about the recent. Um, kind of panel discussion that was held in the city with uh, Wes Jackson and Wendell Berry and Mark Bittman and kind of lumping those three and Michael Pollan all into one group, which, you know, I probably, no, I I wouldn't do. I mean, I don't look at those folks as equal kind of players or thinkers when it comes to agriculture. But I am wondering, you know, for folks like myself who are here in Brooklyn, in New York City, part of the quote-unquote foodie local food movement, what what do you ask of us, and and what should we be thinking about and doing, actually doing to um, move this conversation forward and to to be better kind of partners to producers of of different size and producers that aren't located at the urban fringe and producers that aren't large scale commodity commodity farmers but are so, also aren't kind of small niche boutique farmers. What do you ask of us? Well, don't don't listen and put all your stock into folks like Mr. Bittman and Mr. Pollan. They certainly have their beliefs, and I I wouldn't disagree with some of what they say about food. I, I'm I'm a farmer and I'm a human being, and and I like to eat good food and I like to eat well. But you know, there's a reason why we grow the things we grow, and that's because there are markets for them, and and just because they don't quite fit into those diets that those guys talk about, or just because maybe we don't produce them the way um, Mr. Berry would would maybe say that we should, it doesn't mean that necessarily we're doing anything wrong because uh, we're growing something that there is a market and a use for that's important. And while I'm not really terribly familiar with the agriculture around New York City and New York State, I've visited the city, but I haven't ever actually visited farms in New York State or even on the East Coast. It would be very difficult for you all to feed yourselves without some help from us here in the Midwest. It would be impossible. So, I... you know, yeah, you need, you need, you need us. <laughs> you really need us. Because without us, if we have further demise of family farms and more consolidation in agriculture, then there's going to be a lot more manufactured food. And if you think about it, you know, Ford Motor Company doesn't make money selling iron ore. Ford Motor Company makes money 
turning iron ore into cars. And that's the way big food corporations work. They don't make money selling beef or pork. They make money turning all these agricultural products we have out here into something that they can market, something they can produce cheaply and sell high. So I ask that you consider that in order to have the type of people involved in agriculture like me that you really need, that you question the government and why we don't have more competition in our livestock and poultry markets and why they've allowed so much consolidation and why they've allowed livestock production to be taken off so many family farms in the United States simply because livestock couldn't be produced uh, profitably. That's what I would ask. Richard, thank you so much. We are out of time, but I do hope that we'll have you back on as a guest very soon. Well, it was a pleasure, and I'm glad to be with you. And remember, it's Missouri Farmers Union, okay? MissouriFarmersUnion.com. You can, you can look up there to read um, a little bit more about what's happening in the farm world uh, in the middle of the country, some of Richard's work, and um, definitely stay tuned and stay in touch. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. This program, like all 35 of our weekly shows, is available for free as a download through iTunes or Stitcher Smart Radio. You can also find us by visiting our website, www.heritageradionetwork.org. We are a member-supported organization, so if you believe in our work, please support us by clicking that Donate tab and becoming a member today. Thanks so much for listening, and stay tuned in. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.